It's the 1870s, the Civil War is over, westward expansion is picking up, and there's nothing to do for fun in your little prairie town. Until the carnival arrives, games, freaks, rides, and wrestling? It's time to talk about the circus roots of pro wrestling in America, today on Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro Wrestling History Nerds. OMG, as the kids say on the social media, we are here with another episode. Oh my God, I'm excited. Are you excited? I couldn't be more excited if I was on the pages of 4chan or the flat earth home of the uh, group that all are big fans of our show. That's what I like to think (laughs) as well. Who am I? What are we doing here? My name is Nick Gossard. I'm a wrestling promoter. More importantly for the moment, I am a wrestling history nerd. And I'm here with the Wolfman to my Frankenstein, Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you doing today? Hello, old chap. It is capital to be here. The pr- Oop, take cut, cut, take two. Not big enough. Hello, old chap. It is capital to be here. Pro wrestling history nerds. We are taking a dip into the pool of the cess that Chongo knows best. I am so excited right now. We are going to talk about my personal favorite topic in the history of professional wrestling, and I couldn't be more delighted to stick my fingers in the candy bowl. Heck to the yeah. Uh, so what we do here on the show, we are involved in the business of pro wrestling. We are show business kids. We love pro wrestling and I love history. So we're just putting that all together, the peanut butter and jelly of learning and partying. So what we're doing here, this podcast is all about pro wrestling history because it is deep, it is rich. It's You're trying to describe the indescribable. This is professional wrestling. This is the marriage of the science of combat with the art of performance and and to the creation and the genesis. And we are talking through the history of the formation of what we know as old hat today. This is how it came to be from a work to a shoot, man. I couldn't be more excited. And today we're gonna to be talking about some works. We're gonna be talking about some shoots because we are going back, we've already discussed the early height of pro wrestling, the 1880s, the 1890s, the the touch of the tip, just putting like one finger into the 20th century. But we're gonna take a little bit of a step back. We're gonna go back to the mid 1800s to discuss carnival wrestling history. Carnies, nerds, this is where all of the prestige of the magic trip and the tip of the cap and the three card Monty all came into play. This is where Kizarni was born, the, the language, the, the culture. There is a literal culture, guys like Sin Bodhi. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful subgenre of professional wrestling, and I think that it is some of the most interesting source material in any genre. Absolutely, because this is where wrestling turned into show business with a dash of being a con artist. Yes. <laughs> There's so many scams, so many schemes, so many ways to make a buck when you were a tough guy in the mid to late 1800s on the road across the craziness that was the United States after the Civil War. Whether Farmer Burns showing up in a town wearing a pair of overalls saying, gosh golly, I'll get in the ring with that champion, you know, or fixed uh, track teams, you know, we're talking about the oldest forms of sleight of hand and 
being a worker, man. This is the genesis of being a worker, going from being a shooter to being a worker, where it wasn't about necessarily beating your man, but style and drawing money. And that's what it was all about, because keep in mind, in the mid-1800s, after the Civil War, there was no radio, there was no television, there was no internet. You couldn't take your phone out, find a public Wi-Fi signal because you were too broke to pay your phone bill that week and finding something weird on YouTube to watch. You had to wait for the carnival to come to town. And oh boy, was that an adventure. We could go a little bit further back to the French and English tradition of Greco-Roman and catch wrestling in Europe in the around 1850. We are more interested in the American tale of pro wrestling. How did it grow? How did it turn into the crazy art form that we know and enjoy today? And a lot of it grew out of what is called catch-as-catch-can wrestling. We've talked about it before, but hey, for those of you who might have forgotten, might not have remembered, those are the same things. Or just tuning in for the first time, how do you describe catches catch can wrestling? Catch me if you can with a submission hole and a sleight of hand faster than I can, quick on the draw. You know, whether it's an ankle lock, a choke hold, an arm lock, you are putting your man in a position of compromise where they have to submit or suffer permanent injury. And it is a very aggressive and beautiful style of committing violence on another person. The submissions you might be picturing in your head, UFC-style arm bars, leg locks, chokes, you're right. You're right as rain. That is exactly what this is. And if you think that all these submission holds with Japanese names have an Asian tradition, guess again. Many of them came out of catches catch can wrestling, which is primarily a British style. It came out of Lancaster, England, because back in the days of the British Empire, whose ethics and morals we will mostly overlook because that's an entirely different type of podcast for an entirely different type of conversation, but the sailors of the British Navy traveled all over the world, being exposed to different styles of folk wrestling and grappling and joint manipulation from Japan to Africa to Iceland to India to Mongolia to Russia. And they brought what they learned because these were tough guys who liked to prove themselves as tough guys, lots of fights, lots of matches. And they brought it all back to England where all these styles started coming together in behind the pubs and at the gyms as these men would face off against each other and formalize what we call catch wrestling, which still exists to this day. Yes, it's a basic, basic and, you know, primitive version of what we would consider mixed martial arts today. These guys, the sailors in the British Army, they were going to ports around the world and testing their style against the style of that local port, right? And the reason that it was so submission and grappling specific as the style evolved, you're talking about guys that don't want to show up to duty with a black eye. So they're not going to be throwing a lot of punches at one another. And they're not looking to tire each other out because they got to work their duty. So the, the most efficient art of the kill is the art of the submission. And that's that mechanism of developing the style of going to port to port with these guys and testing this versus that and developing and amalgamating all these styles, it developed into the first form of a truly lethal submission grappling style. And as wrestling came to the United States, we saw an influx of both the catch style and the most popular style of the day, which was Greco-Roman wrestling. Tell us a little bit about Greco-Roman. Greco-Roman wrestling is considered the, the, it is not the actual 
literal interpretation of the rules of actual Greek Olympics of, of yore, but it is the original style of just the most, it's the most brutal style of wrestling, of grappling. It is, there's no foot sweeps, there's no leg movements, it's upper body locks and throws, and it's a really a brutal and, and grinding war of attrition. It's not the most aesthetically pleasing style, but it is very, very effective, and it is very, uh, it really will show you who the toughest guy is. And if you ever wanna see how Greco-Roman works in a real fight, in a real situation, YouTube search Randy Couture, former UFC light heavyweight and heavyweight champion, you'll see what a master of Greco-Roman wrestling can do in an actual fight, even in his 40s. Yeah, upper body control and the ability to manipulate small space, fight in a phone booth, as they say. Greco-Roman wrestling is the most close quarters combat you can get with another person. And it's really a uncomfortable style to watch it when you see a really dominant performance. And it's really indicative of the people of the era. These are tough people. These are people coming out of the Civil War. These are people, these are the cowboys, man. And they respected a true tough guy. And there was nobody tougher than a Greco-Roman champion. I could not have said it better myself. And Greco-Roman was the wrestling style du jour. They called it Greco-Roman because in the 1700s, 1800s, one of the greatest ways to attach legitimacy to anything was to make it classic, to attach it to a Greco-Roman heritage, deserved or not. However, the power, the style, the effectiveness of Greco-Roman could not be denied, and it became very popular as a, an attraction at the carnivals. And like I said, we can explore that French and English tradition later. We're going to talk about the United States and how carnivals became so important to wrestling and so popular after the Civil War. Because wrestling, particularly Greco-Roman wrestling, was very popular in the army camps of the Union Army. There was nothing much to do other than wrestle each other and cause problems. So a lot of wrestlers came out of this camp. And when the war was over, you had a lot of people who were very strong, very good Greco-Roman wrestlers without a lot to do. And some, like you know, we've talked about former Greco-Roman champ William Muldoon, who then went on to France to volunteer to help fight the, the, the vile Prussians, uh, and then came back with even more Greco-Roman skills. But this wasn't a time where there were promotions or leagues or organized amateur sports. It all existed in a traveling carnival. Yeah, this was at a time when the things that we hold as just the pillars of sport in our modern day didn't even exist. Basketball did not exist. Football as we know it did not exist. The, the entertainment aspect of sport was really kept to the combat sport and the track and field stuff, the original sports of, of the Olympics. And, and everything was derived from that. But you're talking about a time when Combat sports was pretty much the only game in town. And that is out of necessity because you have all these warriors that don't have a war to fight anymore. And they need a place to channel that and people want to see it. And it, it really was a perfect storm of all of the circumstance at the time. And pro wrestling expanded as America did. After the Civil War, a lot of the military energy was then put towards, once again, not our 
way to say it. It's just how history acknowledges it. The Indian Wars, the Union Army, after defeating the Confederacy, many units and many brigades, or however they're put together, were sent west to keep uh, settlers safe as westward expansion went coast to coast. And with that went the love of wrestling. With that went new towns, new settlements popping up left and right, and those settlements needed entertainment. And that's why we saw a boom in traveling carnivals during these days. And keep in mind, the carnival was a big different than what we think of it today, or even what we thought about it 100 years ago, because there were no mechanized entertainment. There wasn't bumper cars. There wasn't a Ferris wheel. Anything that closely resembled that was pushed by carnies. Yes, and it was... The, the mechanism of the carnival was a collection of spectacle and oddity, right? At a time when those spectacles, such as like a basketball player, a guy like Wilt Chamberlain, he would have been taken in as a carny and, and made an, uh, they would have created an exhibit and an exhibition of him dunking or reaching a really high thing. And this is the way it was done because they hadn't, these things hadn't formulated yet the way to showcase in an artistic and a competitive manner these different athletic and physical beings. The human the human body is, has so much variation. You look at a guy like Shaq versus a guy like Bruce Lee, and everywhere there are these unique specimens, these mutants, and the carnival was the first place that tried to turn that into entertainment. You know, when you went to the carnival, it would come through maybe once a year. There's nothing in your little dirt farm town in Kansas to do. So it's this is exciting as hell. That's when you would have people, you know, like kids would run away and join the circus looking for a more exciting life. And the carnival would be, you know, you'd have your games, always rigged. Uh, you We'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, you'd have you know, your games. You'd have musical exhibitions. You'd have a boxing exhibition, uh, you'd have your strong men, you'd have your freaks, and you would be able to see a wrestling match. And back in those days, because they would set it up under a tent, it would take place in a circle in the middle of the uh, circus where they would do the animal acts and the acrobatics and everything else. And it wasn't until later that they started turning it into a ring with ropes. And that's where we come, we get the term, the squared circle. Yes, and it, it also the the visual that you get of being inside of the big top and having the the platform of, of combat performance presented right there in front of the people, center stage, it really, it, it, it is the first time that the theatrical element of presentation became a component of professional wrestling. Because the wrestling wasn't necessarily just there to entertain, just like the games weren't there to entertain. Much of this was about scamming the townspeople because they're not coming back here for another year. So this is where we learn a little bit about the carny phrases, the carny way of life, because all these games that we discussed, you know, like if you go to a carnival today, you'll play the, you know, the ring toss, try to knock down the pins, throw a dart to pop up a balloon, trying to win the stuffed gorilla to give to your date. It was the same games back in those days, but they were dishonest as possible. These games were rigged. The hoops weren't big enough to go over the uh, the bottles. The bottles were weighed down to not get knocked down by the ball. The tips of the darts were blunted. The balloons were tough and underinflated. 
The police knew this, and the police quite often would stop the carnival to inspect the games, but the carnies just learned to have a legitimate version of it. As soon as the cops were gone, you just switch it out. Yeah, it was no different than the, the premise of running a bootleg, you know, um, what's, what's the word? What do you call that when you sell alcohol in a place you shouldn't? Oh, a speakeasy. A speakeasy. See, you learn things here on Pro Wrestling History Nerds. It was a good refresher course. You the same the same kind of sleight of hand, man, and you see the skill of one, the conniving mentality, and two, the skill of a true con artist, a society of con artists, of traveling con artists, any way they can make a buck off of a game, you know, catch a sucker for a dollar. It, it's it's really amazing the things that have evolved out of that especially terms that we know today like mark or stick uh, or kayfabe because the carnies needed to find a way to communicate without letting the townspeople know what the shit is going on make sure the cops weren't onto their scams they developed a, a cant which is a term for a subculture sub language and they came up with carny language uh, kizarn or Carney, which is kind of a carny pig Latin, if you will. Google it. There's some YouTube videos. It's rather fascinating. And they would come up with terms like Mark, where if some goofball came into the circus and was just emptying his wallet on a rigged game, they would literally take some chalk and put a mark on his back so everybody else knew this guy could be scammed to down to his last penny. Yeah, think of think of Brad Pitt in um in guy Ritchie in um in what's dang it what's the movie? snatch yeah think of brad pitt and snatch the, the 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 gypsies the carny language the way that they talked amongst themselves it's no different than in, you see it today in sport a third base coach has his ear wiggle and his nose nose wipe it's a it's a language without giving away the signal to to who you're trying to work you know and kayfabe which is a famous wrestling term today which came from carney which is all about protecting the illusion of a worked match, which in these days wasn't about entertainment. It was about working the town for betting money. It was about running a scam, cleaning up, moving on to the next town. Mark, which has gone through so many redefinitions where originally, once again, it was just the person who was clearly a sucker at games. You put a mark on him, you know who to... Uh, who's going to be a soft touch for a dollar stick a stick in the carnival term was a person who would pretend to be an audience member but was actually a carnival employee who would be like oh i won ten dollars playing this game i bet anybody could win ten dollars playing this game and those terms became ingrained with the pro wrestling culture that grew out of these carnival shows mostly because once things started coming down under central booking they had to communicate city to city to city before telephones. They had to go through telegraphs and they would keep using the carny terms to make sure that a telegraph operator didn't spill the beans. Yeah. And that's how it's continued in our business up to the current day. Yeah, that, that was the way that all the records and the, the outcomes of every match were, were relayed back to home base and to the newspapers and any kind, anytime any word of mouth needed to travel a great distance at that time, that was the cutting edge, to, that was the text message or email of its day. And they had to make sure that the people translating that and passing those messages along didn't get the uh, insider information. And this is where catch wrestling kind of comes back into the conversation because as we discussed, Greco-Roman was 
the de facto, if not de jure, grappling art of America and Europe at that point. However, when you do these open challenges to the town folks, because that was really the gimmick, you would have a worked match against your training partner as an exhibition of pro wrestling. And then it would come time to, hey, I'll, you know, whether it was the, the baby face or the heel, uh, the good guy, the bad guy would be presenting to the crowd, I will challenge any man in this house to a fair contest, or if it's the heel, I'll lick any some bitch out there. Then you had to have an open challenge, and the person who accepted those challenges had to be what we call a shooter in the biz. Yes, that what that means is you can take a shot with this guy, but you're not gonna you're not gonna hit. A shooter is about the the most most badass compliment you could have been given back in the day, other than a hooker. A hooker basically was a shooter that was able to hook you in a submission hold, hook a joint, and turn it. But a shooter was the guy in the you know the gunslinger. The shooter, the guy you didn't want to mess with at the bar. Yeah, the shooter was the guy who was a legit badass. There are other terms, like you said, hooker. Hooker is somebody who is a submission expert on top of being a shooter. A shooter is a guy who will beat your ass. Maybe he'll hold you down. Maybe he'll you know just do whatever he needs to do to you. A hooker is a guy who's going to put your uh, you know your 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 elbow to your elbow and make you real sad about it. And that's where catch as catch can wrestling became a integral part of these carnival open challenges. Because initially you would say, like we discussed with uh, William Muldoon, it'd be like, hey, I will pay X amount of money to anybody I can't throw in 15 minutes. If you can last 15 minutes with me, you get a $20 bill. And they did not like parting with their $20 bills. So they wanted to make sure that never happened. And that's why catch became more important because with Greco-Roman, if somebody has a little bit of a wrestling background, they can sometimes avoid being thrown even by the best for 15 minutes. They can backpedal, they can uh, play defensive. So it's not only boring, it's risky. And, and, and it's much more taxing of a, of a physical endeavor to try to wear a man down to the degree that, it, that is required for Greco-Roman rules versus catch as a catch can, you can just catch a submission hold at any time. So it's really much more physically efficient version of grappling if you need to get the job done quickly and effectively and move on to the next match and the next night. And it's more definitive. Without a replay, without video footage, it's easier to argue against a pin because we're not talking a slow pin. One, two, three. It was just almost amateur style rules so long as both your shoulders touch the, uh, the mat, touch the stage. Boom, there you go. And you can argue that. You can then maybe look tough in front of your friends. But when you have to submit and say, please, for the love of God, let my neck, arm, leg go, tap, tap, tappy, tap, 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 you can't argue against that because this is the 1800s. Catch wrestling was just starting to pick up. Think about it in terms of the mid-90s when the UFC started taking off. And people were watching submissions from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu happen and not knowing what the fuck they were looking at. Yeah, the fact is the original UFCs were not mixed martial arts. They were style versus style tournaments to determine the dominant style. And that question was inarguably answered when Hoist Gracie went out as the smallest competitor and swept multiple tournaments. The art of the submission is the art of the kill. No other style of fighting guarantees victory with one successfully executed technique. A boxer can hit you once, 
doesn't mean they win. A wrestler can take you down once, doesn't mean they win. But a submission specialist, a catches catch can wrestler catches one submission, fight is over. And if you don't know what's coming or don't know how it works, it's not only painful, it's confusing. I remember being a slip of a youth in high school and watching UFC 4. Finally got to watch the end of it after that infamous uh, pay-per-view blackout. However, you listen to the commentary. Nobody knew what a triangle choke was. So everybody's watching Dan Severn on top of Hoist Gracie being like, oh, what's keeping Gracie in this fight? How, what's he even going to do? He's got nothing. He's got nowhere to go. Next thing you know, Dan Severn's tapping out and no one knew why because nobody really knew what a triangle choke was. Now multiply that by every single submission possible because you're going to small town Oklahoma where the toughest guy in town has no idea what a double wrist lock is, AKA a Kimura. They don't know a stranglehold, AKA a hanghold, AKA a guillotine. These are all as alien as a fucking UFO. So when you get caught in it, you have no defense. You have no comprehension of why you're suddenly in the most horrific pain of your life and you give up and there's no arguing against that after the fact. Yeah, it is the most definitive form of grappling victory and when you're talking about the carney circuit and and making it about the show because the show makes it about the money competition can can make for a boring affair sometimes compared to when you when you incorporate theatrical elements and the more you build the desire for the match the more you build the desire for the spectacle the more money you make and the carnies figured that out man Oh, absolutely. Like, once again, this was all about money. This wasn't about finding sponsors, finding advertising, TV ratings, none of these things. It was about maximizing your dollar on the spot. And that came down to one important thing, gambling, where you would have the two workers go up and they would put on a perfectly worked Greco-Roman or catch-as-catch-can match. And then you would do the open challenges and you would have people in the audience who worked for the carnival, the sticks, as we discussed, who knew to who was going to win and would make sure to make side bets and bring in extra money both for themselves and for the carnival. Yeah, and, and there were so many ways that they could do it. And they, they, that was where they first started developing, I think, the, the concept of working a specific territory a specific way. They knew that in certain places, they were bloodthirsty. If you presented more of like a villainous approach then they are going to pay to see somebody kick your ass versus some of some places they want to see the hometown boy did good so they might have their plant in the crowd to be the guy that answers the challenge and that's where we got into the like the schemes inside of schemes inside of schemes of this uh, open challenge idea as this carnival is traveling town to town because you set up you do an exhibition match you do open challenges you do side bets on both the exhibitions and the uh, open challenges and you pocket money and then you get into the next dimension where the person making the open challenge from the audience is another wrestler part of the carnival who just is pretending to be an audience member yeah, essentially what you're doing is insider trading where you're controlling every aspect of the things that are being able to to wager and make money off of. And it's it's really a brilliant strategy. And it it also is a fantastic, the marketplace of that medium is a fantastic mechanism for determining what is the best thing. This got a response, this made us money. Now we know that's, it's like hot and cold, right? And they learned how to, work a crowd to make money off of it. And that was the birth of the theatrical heel because 
You can go out and talk trash to the audience, be smug. You find your character. We start seeing characters in the carnival shows. Once again, we're not going to dwell too much on the European tradition. That can be another show down the road. We saw our first masked wrestler, not in Mexican Lucha Libre, but in France in the 1850s. I forget the French translation, but his name was just the masked wrestler. The masked wrestler. When you're the first to do it, you got to do it that way. But it's all about presenting somebody that not only will somebody try to beat in an athletic competition, but somebody the audience will pay to see beaten. And that's where we start layering things. It's just an open challenge. You know your submissions. You hook an audience member to make sure that uh, they're definitely not going to be able to brag about it to their friends. And then you make it even more so where you know, your friend who works in the carnival, who's also a wrestler, challenges you to a match for side betting. And then they realize to double down on that when the guy in the audience says, I'm gonna challenge you. And maybe they have like a, a, a tussle and then the wrestler in the ring or on the stage says, whoa, 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 I've been wrestling all day for this carnival. I need some rest. But if everybody comes back and pays another nickel tonight, you can see me and this guy go at it. And everybody would come back and pay another nickel and put some money on the who they thought was a local tough guy, but he was really a plant that came to town a week early schemes on top of schemes on top of schemes to maximize the money that was in the carney's pockets when they went on to the next town to do it all over again but eventually that did start blowing up in their faces when other pro wrestlers started showing up to carnivals under fake names to uh to take their shot um because the carnivals were following Western expansion. They were going to these new towns. They would find out about, oh, a gold rush here. Keep in mind, this is the era of gold rushes and gold mining. So they would flee to the, you know, the normal people would pick up and go dig millions of dollars of gold out of a mountain. And they were drunken maniacs. So they would happily bet it on a, uh, on a combat sport that they didn't know was a, a work. But Sure enough, there they were with, uh, you know, with a, a whiskey hangover and uh, no money in their pockets the next day. And that's another thing that's very interesting with that Western expansion, because another thing that helped wrestling evolve both as a combat sport and as a spectacle was as America grew West, connecting California to the East Coast, we also started seeing an influx of immigrants from both Asia and European countries. And as we've discussed, every culture has their own grappling art. And we started seeing catch as catch can meet German folk wrestling, meeting uh, Mongolian wrestling from Chinese uh, immigrants coming to work in the gold mines, Cumberland wrestling, Cornish wrestling. The corn, the people of Cornwall were a massive influx of immigration toward the uh, Black Hills gold rush and they had their own version of things and you start once again it's that forerunner to mixed martial arts where all these styles are coming together and turning into this weird hybrid mutant that uh, becomes almost unbeatable and it, and it really is a interesting parallel when i think about it because people think of professional wrestling so much these days as a theatrical a uh sort of entity but I always like to compare it to martial arts. And I think it's very similar to think about it compared to different styles of Kung Fu back in the day, right? In, in Asia, the way that, that you think about a Kung Fu movie where this guy is the best guy and he has this style from this place and this guy is, you know, North Star style, Northern Fist, you know, and the, those styles met and each 
territory developed its own kind of sub style and then those styles cross pollinated and it was really the American version of that. It, I mean, it's really the perfect metaphor for the American dream where immigration, Western expansion, adventure, excitement, it all came together and created something that at the time was becoming both entertainment and a combat sport. Because keep in mind, wrestling, despite the carnival tradition, was a legitimate combat sport until the early 1900s. Were there worked matches? Of course there were, just like there were with boxing, because in combat, combat sports, individual sports are the easiest ones to fix. They're the easiest ones for somebody to throw the match for the sake of gambling payoffs. And it wasn't until 1915 that legitimate pro wrestling really died out. So throughout all these times, we saw the birth of grappling for legitimate combat use. And at the same time, in the same place, it was a perfect circle Venn diagram of the wacky world of pro wrestling that we see today. And there is nothing more American than making money off of violence. And making money off of bullshit. Yes, and it is the perfect amalgamation of the two. So you'd see the carnivals traveling, you know, town to town from New York to Chicago, all the way out to California and back through the uh, Midwest, down through the Southwest. And they would come face to face with grapplers from other countries, other cultures, other folk styles. And they would learn a trick here, learn a trick there. It's very similar to what the British Navy was doing in the early 1800s to create the Lancaster catch as catch can style. So they just kind of pick up the tricks here and there and it makes them harder to beat, not only for the, you know, the local yokel whose asses they're going to kick, but against top competition when it's time to sell tickets for a legitimate match. Yeah, and as the great Jim Cornette would say, go away and learn another hold and come back, right? And, and that's the truth, and that's the, the, the shoot element of that, because you learn a technique that's completely foreign to, the, to what everyone is accustomed to in that little fish tank, in that little bubble, and it becomes a dominant, a dominant uh, hold that, that no one has an answer for because it's from a completely foreign source. Again, tying it back to the first time Hoist Gracie showed the world a triangle choke. If you don't know what it is, you can't defend it. You don't know what a Kimura double wrist lock is, you can't defend it. He choked too. Yeah, it, in, you know, and most of these guys are not getting up and you know, fighting in trunks, you know, the, the local town people. They're getting in there with their shirt still on. So that's more leverage. That's more, you know, you can, use, you can do lapel chokes like in jiu-jitsu. It's, it's like somebody wearing a gi. And that ties into the collar and elbow and the Cornish wrestling styles. So all these weird little tricks of the trade across all these cultures came together in the carnivals. Because, hey, you know what? You come from Cornwall to mine gold in the Black Hills, and you can then jump on to help out a carnival that's traveling through on the way to Oklahoma. Well, guess what? You can make some money being a wrestler if you are indeed a tough grappler. Yeah, and, and they picked, that was the way that it happened. It, they would organically pick up pieces along the way. They would be in a town and someone would be there as a mark or as a you know a get you know a fan at the carnival somebody there to see the show that just had some exceptional ability and they'd be like you're 70 11 feet tall you get to come be a sasquatch now and they, this is how they pick people up and the same thing for the wrestlers they got maybe they they came across from time to time a really tough guy from a certain town and that guy had something that they took from that 
That guy had a really good hold or a really good grip that they could then translate and take back and made them better because they got to see the best of every area. So they combined all of these pieces. And that's what made the carnival challenges start becoming more and more risky because there were legitimate tough guys out there, town to town, city to city, immigrants who were, say, a great German folk wrestler who are now a farmer in somewhere in Minnesota going to walk up and want to challenge you. So it came down to not just being a hooker, being a shooter, having those submission holds that maybe or maybe not they'd uh, they maybe they've seen it maybe they haven't probably haven't but what happens when they do so you would start seeing the dirty tricks where and this is you know indie wrestlers coast to coast will say well that's just what rings are what they would do is put a soft spot or a hole under the canvas in the middle of the ring that the wrestlers the shooters the ones doing the open challenges wouldn't know about but if they were in trouble they would know to whip a guy in that direction knowing they would roll an ankle and go down. They would say, hey, we're gonna put some, uh, you know, some ammonia or something on one of the ropes. So if you're in trouble, grab that rope and start rubbing their eyes. You would see the dirty tricks to stack the deck against the, not just the Joe Schmo who may be a little tough, but the traveling wrestler under an assumed name who's looking to make a good payday on side bets on himself. The literal definition of home field advantage. Putting, knowing where that divot is, knowing where the soft spot is in the ropes. Those are the things that make the difference if, if you find yourself in hot water. And it's, it's not surprising that they gave themselves those outs because, again, it's about shaving every advantage in your favor to make money off the marks. And we would see, like, like we've gone over, it's not just about the birth of pro wrestling as a legitimate combat sport. It's not just about the birth of a heel trying to fire up the town so they would bet big against him or want to come back and pay more money to see him get his ass kicked. It wasn't just about the showbiz or about the athleticism. We also saw legitimate stars be born out of the carnival wrestling circuit because you would have guys like Martin Burns, Farmer Burns, who was one of the greatest catch wrestlers of the late 1800s, the man who defeated Evan Strangler Lewis for his title, who, before he became too famous, would show up at the traveling carnival wearing a straw hat, wearing his overalls, just being chucky dang darn, I'm just a simple farmer, and then would go and submit the wrestler who is on stage, not only winning the prize money for defeating the wrestler, but he probably bet a hundred bucks on himself. Yeah, good golly, Miss Molly, what a worker. <laughs> Show up in overalls and the, he's got the, you know, piece of, piece of wheat sticking out and the straw grass hat and he's like, shucks, I'll go next. And then he, he was, you know, what it came down to is they had to adapt their tactics because the big fish in every pond they were going to now was becoming more and more dangerous, more and more formidable, more and more tough guys were in more and more towns, and the carnies had to had to uh, to to get the fix in a new way, as they say. And one of the biggest stars that essentially came out of the carnivals was Frank Gotch. And he is a man we're gonna talk about a lot in the future. He was potentially in no insult to Dan Gable or anyone else, the greatest wrestler that America produced. And this is the late 1800s, touching the 1900s. He was a, you know, he just pretty much learned folk wrestling, Greco-Roman wrestling, just being the tough grappler in his town in Iowa. 
1899, he defeated a rather well-known wrestler in Marshall Green with three straight falls. But he was traveling doing the open challenges. He was just a tough guy. He was strong. He was mean. He was a dirty fighter. He's a hard guy to root for when you realize just how he was in the ring, but that's a tale for another day. But when he was traveling with the carnivals, doing the open challenges, doing the worked matches with his fellow carnival wrestlers, this is where Dan McLeod, another guy we discussed. Guy Strangler Lewis said was the toughest guy he'd ever been. The most complimentary he ever was of an opponent was McLeod. Well, he would show up to these carnivals just claiming to be a simple furniture salesman from Omaha, Nebraska, and then would turn the guy inside out and collect not just, you know, once again, not just the, the prize money, but the bet he placed on himself or that his friend placed on him. Betting is where the money is. That's why it all kind of started turning into a work. And McLeod beat him, but he, it, while being in the uh, the ring on the stage, I don't have the details for how that match went down. He was impressed with Gotch, as was McLeod's trainer, Martin Farmer Burns, who said, hey kid, you got a future in this business. Why don't you come train with me? And Frank Gotch went on to be the world champion and acknowledged as the greatest wrestler of his era. Yeah, the man that beat Strangler Lewis took Gotch as his protege, and that combination became perhaps the the defining greatest wrestler of all of of that America has ever produced. Man, I mean, is there anybody? Yeah, like you said, Gable. Um, I can I, He's definitely on the Mount Rushmore if he's not the greatest American wrestler of all time. And when Gotch came to Burns, Burns wanted to test him out. McLeod had kind of been the gatekeeper to get to Martin Burns. Martin Burns was the champion. He got the title from Lewis. And something we start seeing as wrestling becomes less and less legitimate is you'll have a great champion and he'll have what at the time was called a policeman or what we would call a gatekeeper at this, where either A, he would beat a guy that the champ didn't actually want to wrestle or he would put over somebody who he recognized he could beat and make a lot of money with. Yeah, as a personal gatekeeper for Quentin Rampage Jackson for about nine years, I can tell you that that's the guy that does all the dirty work. You have to beat the gatekeeper to get an appointment with the man. And the fact that he got to get, he, he earned the right to get an audience with Farmer Burns is, you know, that in and of itself is a tremendous, tremendous accomplishment to beat McLeod, to get the opportunity to, to have that, that addition essentially with Farmer Burns and Farmer Burns obviously he did not disappoint because he took him as his his Padawan, his protege. And that was the style of wrestling in the 1890s, early 1900s, is you would have your wrestling intern, if we will, who would hold that position. McCl you know, McLeod did it for Burns, Gotch did it for Burns, uh, and it led to, you know, it, it's, it's weird to say now that it led to the delegitimizing and collapse of competitive pro wrestling, but it gave us the sport and entertainment style and amazing spectacle that we all love today. So it's the destination, not the journey that bends the moral compass. And under the tutelage of Burns, Gotch not only learned how to become the most technical catch wrestler of his generation, 
look up Gotch Toehold and tell me how much you'd want to be put in one of those. But he also learned the carny showbiz side of things. In 1901, you know, Gotch, as the policeman gatekeeper to Burns, would lose a match against like a small town baker tough guy. Then two weeks later, Farmer Burns would visit the town and challenge the much lauded baker tough guy. The previous victory allowed side bets to be very profitable because people saw this, our local badass, the big fish in the small pond, to be somebody who's like, oh man, this guy can really take the champ. He put away this guy, he beat him. So clearly, you know, you get behind the guy, get behind the local badass, put your money on it, it wasn't even fucking close. Yeah, it was it was another carny tactic to get the money from the marks. They 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 went in, they they set the precedence, they built, they hyped the fight, they brought in the man and then they did the job and it's it's the the recipe is thought of as old hat these days, but these are the guys that invented this. These are these are cowboys, rough riders, you know, civil war survivors that were just, you know, the level of machismo and just badass in the way that these guys played. These guys played for keeps, man. And they, these were some serious bad dudes. And it's amazing the way that that manifested in the, the, the performance side of it, which helped them make the money off the marks and fed the business and it became the cyclical thing, man. Exactly. And we saw another big boost because we had the big boost in carnival shows after the Civil War. Uh, as one YouTube video said, a British, uh, a British academic was talking about the, the period and he worded it so perfectly. After the Civil War, America was a land of violent idiots with no outlet. Yeah, to paraphrase Hemingway, right? Once you have hunted man, no other sport tastes as sweet. It's like you have honed your senses to compete against the very best thing you can find. And once you have trained yourself to do that, to turn that off, to walk away from that, that's not what we're programmed to do. And these guys were killers, man. These guys were were revolutionaries in the combat arts. They were combining arts, combining grappling arts and taking it on the road and using it theatrically to make money. And it is the, the beginnings of all the things we see in the entertainment industry today from action movies to pro wrestling to, you know, the way that uh, you see in the fight game that they act like pro wrestlers sometimes. Oh, 100%. And we saw a secondary boom after 1893 when the first Ferris wheel, the first mechanized amusement park ride debuted at the Chicago World's Fair, which was, you know, a little side uh, side quest if you're feeling like uh, researching anything, is where serial killer H.H. Holmes was active. Again, we saw in that period, everybody wanted to come out and see the mechanized rides to see these new contraptions. Imagine being a, you know, a dirt farmer in Oklahoma who suddenly sees, uh, gets to see a, ride a Ferris wheel for the first time. That's like... Yeah, the, the most world-renowned thing you've ever seen is a book, right? There's no video, there's no phones, there's no like indoor plumbing, there's no electricity at a, at a main, that's, not a, that's for the 1% at, for these people. So to see a Ferris wheel and have the opportunity to go on this thing, and let's, let's also put into perspective, this is Chicago. This is the house that Strangler built. So the, the love and the deep-rooted 
fan base in Chicago. Again, right place, right time, perfect storm. The the grandiose spectacle of the of the fair with the the rustling tradition of Chicago. And with the newfangled inventions of mechanized rides, traveling carnivals became bigger than ever. Pro wrestling became bigger than ever because we would have those athletic shows as the pro wrestling part of things were concerned because a lot of times they also performed as strongmen. There were also exhibition boxing matches, which is really bad for your brain, but they didn't know that then. And you would have more organization going on where now because tra traveling coast to coast became easier. So they would be able to send two or three guys to the town ahead of time to scout the tough guys at the bar so they knew what they would be into. And you would have the villainous heel wrestlers who knew who to call out and knew how they fought a little bit. This thing had been scouted a little bit. And they also would go after guys who had tough guy friends because you beat one guy and humiliate him and make him scream in pain from a submission hold. You know, you slap, you know, Joe, you know, Joe the dairy farmer with a sugar hold until he's uh, screaming his friend's gonna wanna challenge you. And again, we get to that, hey, I already beat three guys tonight. Everybody has to come back, pay another nickel to see me beat you guys. So you get those side bets, you get extra gate money. It was all about the dollar as they're traveling coast to coast. Yeah, it was it was a really, really uh, uh, repeatable formula for making money. Send your people, get a, get a flavor for the town, go in there, scout the tough guys, figure out the best way to work that territory. And that's where the territory, that's the, the genesis of the territory specific style came to be. In this town, they got a lot of tough guys. So they're gonna wanna pay to see somebody get their ass kicked. This town, there's nothing. So maybe we put our own plant in the crowd so we give them a, a champion of their own to root for. And you give them the flavor of ice cream that that town's gonna buy and they developed a mechanism for, for filling that out and determining that flavor. And it really became the tried and true style. And it's really amazing how these things came from trial and error. And it's from this tradition and during this time, one of my truly favorite stories, uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, tales of wrestling adventure scams, however you want to put it. And a lot of you are going to listen to this who know wrestling history and say, I definitely heard a different version of this. I don't think that part actually happened. When Gotch went to Alaska, 70 different versions of various stories were told. Like the amount of money he made doubled every time he told it over the years. So you really can't accept everything at face value. Clearly versions of this happened. It's just a matter of how much was a work, how much was a shoot, how much was actually bet upon what the motivations were. And we'll talk about that when we talk about Gotch in detail. However, whether he went up to work some marks or whether he went up to be a legitimate gold miner, Frank Gotch assumed the name of Frank Kennedy and handed off to the Klondike in the early 1900s. He claimed that he just wanted to go up there and be a gold miner and didn't want to deal with his fame as a wrestler, so he changed his name. That doesn't sound right in any way to me. My carny senses are tingling like nobody's business. 
And this is truly one of the best carnival-style scams, even though it wasn't really part of a carnival. According to author Jonathan Snowden in his book Shooters, The Toughest Men in Professional Wrestling, which I highly recommend, happened in the Klondike during the Gold Rush. Frank Gotch teamed with fellow wrestlers Ole Marsh and Colonel James McLaughlin and headed to fleece mining towns that were starving for entertainment. Think about what a mining town looked like in the gold rush. It was just a bunch of dudes, maybe a whorehouse, not a lot to do other than mine, dig gold, become rich, drink, gamble it all away. Watch Deadwood, you'll get a pretty good idea of what things were like. So under the name Frank Kennedy, he went up to this town, was digging up gold or pretending to during the day, maybe he was just napping in the woods, but he would be challenging people at the bars, getting in fights, establishing himself as the toughest some bitch in the entire area. And like I said previously, there's a lot of versions of the story, and we'll go over a lot of them when we talk about Gotch. So Gotch had established himself as the toughest man in the camp. So when Marsh and McLaughlin arrived in a traveling wrestling show, they did the open challenge to the crowd, and every dies fell upon Frank Kennedy. So Frank Kennedy got up there and gave the, the professional wrestlers, you can see the air quotes if you were sitting in the room with me, everything they could handle, went to a draw. It ended non-definitively. So when the wrestler said, whoa, 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 we've been wrestling all day. This guy's tough, but you know what? If everybody comes back tomorrow, I'm gonna give this guy a proper try at my title. Gotch slash Kennedy had been in camp for so long, everybody just assumed he's the toughest fucking guy. He almost beat that wrestler before they called it off. I'm gonna put my giant rock of gold that I dug out of a mountain or a river this morning on the line. So everybody bet the house on Kennedy, not knowing he was Frank Gotch. There are different versions of the story where people knew it was Gotch. It's the, once again, it's the mythology of wrestling. It's playing telephone. The story's gonna change over time. It's impossible to really tell the truth because this is all an oral tradition. But according to this version, everybody in town, everybody at the camp showed up to put all their money on their pal, Frank Kennedy, the toughest guy in the camp as he took on the wrestling champ. And Frank Gotch just laid it down and let himself get pinned. And they took over a million dollars in early 1900s money. The greatest work, in my opinion, of all time. Frank Gotch goes all the way to the peak of the Alaskan gold rush, to where the gold is literally coming out of the mountain. He went further up to the, to the origin point of the gold and he fleeced the whole town. He went up there, he established himself as the bad dude. He got the, the faith and the trust of everyone in that town where you got a bunch of drunk miners that got literal gold nuggets in their pocket that are like, that's my boy, I'm gonna bet the da da da. They're not even, th it was the greatest, uh, uh, fleece and a sucker, I can, I can possibly imagine. They went to the, to the gold mine, to the literal gold mine, and they worked everybody. It is the greatest work of all time. And they, it was arguably the greatest American wrestler in history who did it. And as I said, there are several versions of the story. Gotch even told one where he was held up to hang out with friends before sailing back to the mainland, but most of the gold and money was on a ship that sank, so it kinda does poke some holes in the story, but never let the truth get in the way of a good story is one of the, one of the foundations of pro wrestling. And 
this whole Carney scam idea wasn't specific to the United States. The Carney tradition in England lives on to this day. Wrestlers like Robbie Brookside and William Regal both made their reputations doing open challenges and work matches on carnivals. You'll see amazing stories of, I, I wanna say it was Regal telling a tale, I could be very wrong, about seeing a kid win the championship belt off of a raffle at the wrestling show. And then when he got to the next town, the same kid won the raffle for the wrestling belt. So it's just scams upon scams upon scams all the things you could do before the internet was a thing. And we see this in other martial arts traditions where we talked about Kung Fu earlier, where a Kung Fu instructor would show up in a new city, new town, set up a platform and challenge everybody. And I can guarantee you it all worked the same way. And another position where we see a lot of parallels is in Judo. The name's gonna sound familiar to a lot of people. Um, uh, Mitsuya Maeda, who was a judoka and legendary figure in contemporary martial arts. And there are a lot of different stories about the guy and we'll see why they are suspect and we'll talk about that in a moment. Case in point, there's a version of his story where he showed up to the uh, Kodokan and demonstrated such good jujitsu skills that Jigoro Kano awarded him a high belt rank immediately, even though the blue and purple belt didn't really exist at that point. Once again, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Uh, if you don't, aren't familiar with judo, uh, fill us in a little bit. Judo is the art of the throw. The, the, the reality is nothing hits harder than the ground and there is no more complex and beautiful martial art form grappling variant than judo. Uh, you use the gi similar to jiu-jitsu, any kind of body lock or cloth grip is, is, is fair game and it is open game. You have a lot of step-in foot sweep techniques and high angle throws. It has all the throws of what you would think of in Greco-Roman or freestyle wrestling, but with the additional leverage points and variables of gi grips. So it really makes for the most comprehensive takedown art in all of grappling. And it really did create modern practical martial arts via Randori, which is practical grappling wrestling training, because you could no longer say, oh, I know this technique, but it's so dangerous I can't do. It was the fork in the road in Asian martial arts between actual fighting and what we now call bullshito, just total bullshit martial arts, where you're no longer saying like, oh, the technique I used to stop a guy with a sword is now how I defeat a guy throwing a jab, but I can't show it to you because it's too dangerous. It was real. It was practical. You would train the way you fight and you can't get more practical than that. And judo spread across the world. Uh, Yoshiaki uh, Yashishida traveled to the United States and gave judo demonstrations and training and even taught President Teddy Roosevelt, who was a fighting sport enthusiast. Yes. Once, once judo threw a bear. Uh, Sujiniro uh, Tamita and Maeda came to the States later doing exhibition matches with each other, then taking on challengers from the crowd, usually picking bigger men, which wasn't hard for them, to make it more impressive. This is going to sound like an echo of the old Carney challenges, and for a good reason. According to a 1905 article in the North Carolina Gazette News, Maeda met with Akatira Ono, a judoka who came to America and was involved in pro wrestling to make ends meet. Ono would later become the pioneer of judo in Europe, specifically Germany. 
Maeda took up pro wrestling in Georgia while living out of a YMCA in Selma, Alabama. Not quite what Kano meant when he wanted his students to take judo abroad. So for almost 20 years, he traveled with other Japanese judokas such as Ono and uh, Takagora Ito, competing in pro wrestling in Cuba, England, Scotland, Belgium. He competed in the 1908 Alhambra tournament under catch rules. Fun little side story, competing in the Greco-Roman side of the tournament was George Hackenschmidt, a huge star in wrestling who will be discussed later. In Spain, he performed under the name Caroa Maeda, or Troubled Maeda, which was a joke about his finances. Later, he would be known as Conde Coma, the Count of Combat. He was teaching judo when he could, but he made a living as a wrestler, exhibition, open challenge fighter in carny tradition. It was hard to tell when it was a work and when it was a shoot because of limited information from the time. The oft-repeated claim of him winning 2,000 fights is it's obviously nonsense, born out of pro wrestling. He was obviously tough, as were his uh, compatriots, but there's a lot of questions about how many matches were shoots versus how many were works. He even did old-timey carny stunts, like in Mexico he did during the 1909 Open Challenge. If any man could throw him, he'd give him 500 pesos. Later, a mysterious Japanese challenger appeared named Nobu Taka, and a match was billed as the Jiu-Jitsu World Championship which clearly didn't exist. Taka won in front of a stun crowd. Taka then dropped the fake title back to Maeda four days later. Taka turned out to meet his old friend, uh, uh, Soshiro Satake. The old flippin' switch is alive and well in 1905, eh? So yes, judo has all of the elements of professional wrestling that you need to make a good worker because it's about control, minimal application of gas pedal, and a true Judoku, a true judo master, can control the level that they have to put into fighting that opponent. So in in that sense, they're working no matter who they're going against. It's like this this farm boy in this town, I only have to give 10% and I can make him look formidable and then I can work with this guy and, and it really, it's very understand. I understand how they could use that to be very to translate that into working. And despite his antics and showbiz flair, he was promoted to fifth degree black belt from, for promoting judo in Cuba and Mexico. He married, settled down in Brazil, and founded a judo club, uh, Club Remo, in 1921 that still operates to this day. But he would have most likely faded into obscurity of martial arts lore, if not for a 14-year-old boy named Carlos Gracie seeing him perform in 1917. The Gracie family, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, another story that needs to be told at some point. But one thing that is a hallmark of the Gracie family is their love of tall tales that I feel like is born from pro wrestling. Case in point, they made up a story about how Maida taught them judo and jiu-jitsu judo at the time, and how it was practically treason against Japanese culture to teach judo to non-Japanese. But that was just a tall tale to grow their legend and legacy. Clearly, Kano wanted judo spread worldwide. It was spreading worldwide. That was part of his plan, part of his policy. So this was just trying to make it sound romantic and dangerous that this guy took a risk to teach their family jujitsu. But the tall tales, <clears throat> lies of the Gracie family are a story for another day. Yes, and that will be an interesting story because the tales, both the shoot and the work, as they say, 
are incredible and I'm excited about that one. But Chongo digresses. With the the Carney scheme is alive and well and the judo coups are running wild and working the working the working the marks, getting the money. And uh I, I wanna see when the catches catch can and the judos meet judo coups meet head to head. Oh absolutely. And the carnival mostly started to die out when we had a radio, when we had movies, when we had television, when we had entertainment options, and the open challenges from the shooters and the hookers died out as A, wrestling became more of a work, so wrestlers became less and less tough as time went by, unless you were a top guy like a Fez or a Harley Race, and the average person becoming tougher post-World War II. The last carnival-style shoot match that I found evidence of was in 1968 when Mr. Wrestling Tim Woods took on a local tough guy who bit his finger off. That's a shoot. He took on Arnold Sperling, a former who turned out to be a former Golden Gloves champion in Columbus, Georgia. Mr. Wrestling just dominated the match, uh, was punching him a lot, dirty fighting for a wrestling match, but hey, it got the job done. And the challenger was grabbing his mask, trying to any dirty trick he knew, and finally grabbed his hand minimally and bit down on his finger until the goddamn thing came off in his mouth. The crowd erupted in insanity, a riot nearly ensued, and that was the death knell for open challenge carnival style matches in the United States and most likely in the world. Yes, and on that night, Mr. Wrestling 2 was born, and the gimmick would live on as, as the tradition of, of the hustle and the, the, the fleecing a sucker and working a mark, it, it, it's an ever evolving thing. And, and it went through many different stages based on where the audience was at that time when they were coming out of the Civil War versus coming into and coming out of World War One and World War Two. The people were different. The hustle had to had to match the audience. And don't be too concerned about Mr. Wrestling. They were able to surgically reattach his finger, but there was no surgically reattaching carnival wrestling back into American culture. At that point, wrestling was a work. You'd have tough champions just in case the local townie took a shot at him, but it had been a work for a long time. It had been staged, it had been prearranged, it was choreographed. It was not a real fight. So real fighters started falling out of favor during this era as it transitioned into television entertainment. But there's no denying the roots of pro wrestling, those carnivals traveling town to town after the Civil War, where legitimate catch-as-catch-can wrestlers came up against folk-style wrestlers, came up against Cornish wrestlers, came up against Greco-Roman wrestlers, and the fusion of styles created pro wrestling as it was known at the dawn of the 20th century and became the entertainment that you and I watch constantly. Yeah, and I think, I think the final aspect of the evolution of the finger finger bite of doom of Mr. Wrestling was that it was the realization that the workers needed to be tough guys. They needed to be able to beat the marks in any town they went to. But then they could work within one another to make money and keep each other safe because the formula was about having the draw and the ability to reproduce that money over and over again. And so they, they, they understood that working together to make money was more valuable than fighting and beating each other. So they would beat any of the fans that they needed to beat to, to give, to keep up the illusion. 
but then they would work with one another and that's how the evolution happened. And it's a magical thing, a weird thing. One can romanticize the past. One can lament the carny swerves that turned a legitimate sport into a spectacle. But I love both. I love the whole thing. And here we are in the modern world with uh, wrestling on television damn near every day of the week and I wouldn't have it any other way. That's right. And the, the greatest postmodern art form in America is professional wrestling and it was born at the circus, darling. Born at the carnival. And speaking of circuses, this circus, I feel, has come to an end. The elephants are tired. The clowns are asleep. It's time to call it a night. But God damn it, what a fucking journey we just went on. Dude, the, the carny life is the life for me. Thank you for joining us on this epic adventure down the rabbit hole. There's so much more. If you're interested, please uh, uh, don't let this be the end of it. Explore for yourself. We would love feedback. Hit us up on our social medias. Yeah, like us on Twitter. You don't like things on Twitter. I don't like Twitter at all, so. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, email us at pwhistorynerds at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think. If you have cool stories, things we need to investigate, we're, we're all about it. So yeah, communicate, interact, listen, learn, and party. That's what we're all about here. And on that note, I'm Nick Gossert. That's Chongo Bronson. Good night, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Ta-da!